0: This is The Michael Slate Show, and I'm Michael Slate. We have uh, yet another packed show, so let's get, uh, let's get going. At the back end of the show, we'll be welcoming back Raymond Lada, a writer for RevCom.us and an advocate of Bob Avakian's new synthesis of communism, The New Communism. We're going to be talking about the fiasco in Glasgow, uh, so stick around for that. It's going to be very, very interesting, very heavy. Something that you really got to sit down and think about and uh, think about what it means in the world right now, okay? And opening the show up, I'm really pleased to be doing this. I'm, I'm going to play an interview that I just did with the makers of the documentary film Attica. And let me tell you, it, it is, a, it is a, just an amazing film, and these folks have some very important things to say. But before we go into the interview, I want to give you a small bit of this important and powerful film. So here's the trailer to Attica. Attica was... F- fear...
1: There was 70% black and brown prisoners, all white guards. What could go wrong?
2: Grab the guards, grab the keys. All oh, hell, do loose. Tell me this. Are these primarily
3: blacks?
1: Guys were complaining about the basic things like toothpaste. A roll of toilet paper lasts you a month. The inmates were considered like animals. You up in
0: your cell, and then they take your segregation, and sometimes you don't come back.
3: Have the inmates made any
2: demands? There are all kinds of demands for change in the whole world.
3: This had to be
2: mediated, otherwise it was going to end in disaster. They wanted
1: to use those weapons. Put your hands in the air, and you will not be harmed.
0: You will not be harmed. You will not be harmed. Not be harmed. But that was good.
2: He was waking up America.
0: Somebody had to take a stand. I'm talking with the filmmakers of Attica, a new documentary about the Attica Prison Rebellion, which happened in September 1971, 50 years ago this year. Stanley Nelson is an American documentary filmmaker, a director, writer, and producer of the documentaries examining African-American history and experiences. He is the writer and co-director of the film, Attica. We're also joined by Tracy Curry, who is the co-director and producer of Attica. She is a national award-winning producer, director, and writer of powerful stories with more than uh, two decades of experience. Both of you, welcome very much to uh, to the show. Thank you so much. Sure, sure. So, what I want to tell, what I want to talk to you about first is, I think you know, there's there have been books and documentaries made of the 1971 Attica prison rebellion, but this film seems to be much deeper than them. And you folks have been uh, very, you've been planning this for a while. So let's, you know, and I, I have to tell you because you know it was always knowing what what happened in in Attica, and it was, it was a, sort of something that it actually helped shape my life. And when I started reading this and reading what you folks had put together, it really I found it both moving, enraging, and, and and really important that people could actually get some have access to this and see the truth about what happened. These there have been books and documentaries made of the 1971 Attica prison rebellion, but this film does go much deeper. And I wanted to talk with you about that. So what? Why was this film so important to make? And I guess either one of you can know. I guess I'll I'll, I'll pick first. I guess. <laughs> unless you have a thought about... You want to... Uh, Stanley, you, do you mind p- uh, being first? Sure.
1: Okay. Um, you know, the film that I've been thinking about for a, a number of years, I just thought it was a, a story that, that uh, told so much about um, our prison system, so, told so much about race, told so much uh, about our government and, and, and power, and um, that it was a story that really hadn't been examined Um from all sides. And, and I thought that, that um, uh, you know, it was a story that was really worth telling. And a story that that, that could be told and could be really a moving story. And, and also, you know, as a filmmaker, the story of, of what happened in Attica for those five days plays out kind of like a thriller. You know, um, every day is different. Uh, and every day is, is, is something unexpected.
0: Yeah. Now you know one of the things that, that struck me is because that was that was actually a very big part of my life, of my life in terms of you know being out in the streets, being radical, all this stuff, and understanding what and, and I, I, understanding a lot. But then when I saw what happened there, it really struck me in terms of you know in terms of what was the, what was the reality in this country, and and I don't think it ever stopped. And I'm wondering now, Tracy, why don't you throw some things in there, too, in terms of what you were thinking about along the same lines?
4: Um, Yeah, so, excuse me, I signed up for the project. I didn't know very much at all about what had happened there. It was um, uh, a long time before I was born. um, And I knew kind of vaguely that there had been some kind of disturbance that had happened at a prison um, in upstate New York. I knew, like I think a lot of people, the dog day afternoon scene, I wasn't really sure how that was tied to what actually happened, but I understood that whatever this event was so resonant in the culture, um, that just the invocation of it um, in that scene and in other places kind of brings up all of these ideas and um, emotions and feelings. And I knew that it had a lot to do um, with issues that I personally interested around um, uh, the use of state power, uh, law enforcement abuses, um, justice, race, humanity, all of those things. And so I was really excited to have the opportunity to kind of um, dig into the story and actually making the film was really a learning experience of, um, for me because I'd learned um, as we went along um, making the story. And it really is just kind of an extraordinary um, moment when you had um, these prisoners who are in, a, in, a, in the unusual situation for prisoners are being highly visible um, because they had the media come in, articulate in their own words um, not only sort of the experience of what it was like to be in a prison like Attica at that time, but this demand for the recognition of their humanity um, through this list of demands that they were um, uh, calling out for during those days in DRs.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, you know, some of the materials... Um or actually, you know, it's it's interesting because I, I when I hear about Attica and what happened there, it's sort of like in my mind. Given I was like a teenager when, when it happened and and the rest of this stuff, and it's like what. Really thro- throws me now is that it is something to, to so many people. It's something that they don't know about, but it's also something that you know. It's a material that that, that yes, it's while well, it may be new, They're the pres- the the prisoners survivors have been around for fifty years. And one of the things that, that's really important in this because they don't they don't disappear like in a lot of things in a lot of uh, things like this. A lot of uh, you know things that, are, that people gets they get stuck in you know in the prison forever or they get killed or they get whatever, or they just get out and they just want to get away. But here, you know, the, the prisoner survivors have, they have been around for 50 years and their, their stories have been told. I don't think their stories have been told in quite the same way that they're being told now. And it's really important, you know, when you get this. So I'd like to actually talk, I guess, Stanley, with you first. It's like, what was your approach to the interviews? You know, because it, was so, it had been, when you look at like everything that happened to the people in Attica, to all the prisoners in Attica, you think, you know, what, what they actually went through, what they saw, what was done to them. And then you're coming to them 50 years later and you're asking them, okay, you know, we've got to, we've got to talk about this. We've got to resurrect this. Basically in the, in the country, we've got to resurrect what was, what was actually happening here, what was done and why, why people do have to acknowledge that this was what was going on. This is what was being done by this government and they can never forget that. So what was your approach to getting people to join in the interviews? What, you know, what did you think people what, – and what do you think people will learn from these interviews?
1: Um, well, I'll let Tracy answer most of that question because she, she did the interviews. Um, actually, she did all the interviews. But, you know, I think that, that I knew going into the project, I felt that, you know, if there were about a 1,000 guys out there in the yard, um, and it was 50 years ago, then, then certainly uh, – some of them were, you know, aged, you know, eighteen to twenty-five or so, or thirty, and they would still be alive. And there were a, were a number of people that we could interview who, who might not have been uh, given might not have been given the opportunity to tell their story. Um, and so that was how how we kind of approached it uh, from the beginning. But Tracy can really talk about you know
0: how the interviews were done. All right, Tracy, you're on the spot now. Yeah, sure.
4: Um, so, you know, as you can imagine, Michael, if you've seen the film, um, for anybody who lived through what happened on September 13th, 1971, um, that, that never leaves you. Um, this was a profoundly traumatic experience for every single person, um, not only the prisoners, um, but the observers, the families um, of, of the hostages, the members of the media, um, anybody that was there. Um, this, this moment has really stayed with them. So, you know, I tried to be very mindful about that Um, and my approach um, to understand that it's no small thing to ask people um, 50 years after the fact um, to go back and kind of relive in great detail um, what it was that happened to them. Um, And so, you know, initially it was just trying to really be sensitive to that and just kind of having conversations where, um, you know, I try to be as transparent as possible with people about what um, Stanley and my intentions were. Um, for these, for the film and for, you know, what we, we plan to do with these, you know, precious slices of their lives and their experience. Um, and then from there, what I found was that, um, you know, I think the injustice of it all, um, the way everyone was treated by the state of New York in this, um, it still stings, it still sits with people, and I found that people actually um, really did want to talk about it. Um, and so I think what you see in the film um, is how how present Um, all of that range of emotions, um, the, the rage, the shame, the fear, um, uh, all of that stuff is was right there beneath the surface. And so, um, you know, after a few initial conversations, um, by the time we kind of sat down and we're talking about it on camera, it just kind of, um, I just kind of allowed space for people to kind of, um, relive it and experience it, um, and communicate that experience in the way that felt most authentic to them.
0: Now, I understand that none of the surviving guards um, who had been hostages agreed to talk, but you did talk to family members. And Tracy, what was your experience going back to the area for those interviews?
4: Um, well, the family members are, some still live up there and um, some still live in other places. Um, and obviously, you know, the, 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 the guards and their families are going to have, you know, a different perspective on this than the prisoners. Um, and so there was a little bit of you know, conversation about, um, you know, what our approach would be in terms of, um, you know, representing all of the various perspectives of the story. And I try to be very clear with everyone that our intention was to tell a 360-degree story that includes as many people um, that were touched by this as possible and that ultimately this is a story about um, the way uh, the governor this, and and, and this, the power of the state is embodied in the governor um, abused um, and misused its power in a way that harmed all of them. Um, and I also, you know, let them know, and I think they sort of understood and appreciated um, that we were also trying to tell the story about Attica, not just a prison, um, but how Attica actually was a place. It was a community um, where people lived and raised families. And, um, you know, you hear someone in the film talk about how it was a, it was, it was a company town um, and the prison was a company. Um, and that was, you know, not only sort of an economic driver, Um, for the people of Attica, but it also was something that these people take great pride in. You hear someone talking about the generations of people that worked um, as as guards in the prison, civilian employees in the prison, people on your block um, worked there. And so, um, you know, I communicated to them, and I think they understood that we we also wanted to tell um, that part of the story as well. Mm -hmm.
0: You know, one of the things that got me, though, too, which was, you know, it was kind of—it was very heavy for this because, you know, you (laughs) had— I mean the horrific things that were done to people, and it was and it was horrific. And when you look at the you look at the the way the people were, I mean people were treated like animals. And I'm not, and I'm talking about the, the 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 people that were locked up in the jails were treat, were were treated like animals. I mean the people that were killed, that were just slaughtered. I mean and and, and it's it, you know you're you're standing there you're sitting there and you're watching this and you keep keep thinking that you know, <laughs> basically one it's very interesting that um, none of the surviving guards who had been uh have been Hostages agreed to talk, but you did talk to family members, and you know. And then you know you think about this, and you th- and you're you're listening to that, and then you're thinking about well, this was actually this was the Attica Rebellion, and it happened during the, the the period of the 1960s where there was a lot of stuff that people were really you know I know it it had a big impact on me, and it was because I was already yes involved in the movement and all this other stuff, but there was a lot of revolutionary tumult that occurred in the in the course of this. It gave people a chance to understand what was happening in the society at this time, things that were always hidden. And when this, when, when Attica happened, things were not hidden that much anymore. And it was the, you know, there was a, the film talks about specific events or personalities like Malcolm X and George Jackson and the murder of George Jackson, but there was something else, something in the air. And there were these younger prisoners who had very difficult who had a very different attitude coming into Attica. Can you talk with us about that? Stanley.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that that, that to understand Attica, um, we had to place it in, in uh, you know, the, the 60s. Even though it was 1971, Attica could be looked at as the kind of end of, of the 60s, but that the, the prisoners were being exposed to the Black Panthers. They were being exposed to the young lords, uh, George Jackson, um, Malcolm X, you know, um, so many different things. They were part of, uh, even though they were in prison, they were part of the times, and and. I think that makes Attica un- more understandable and the, the reasons why um, they would rebel and, and kind of not just take the, the treatment that that, um, that prisoners were given in Attica for so many years.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, another thing that I wanted to talk with you about, and I, I guess I can talk with you and then talk, uh, well, either one of you can talk on it, but I think it would be <laughs> maybe good for both of you to hear it uh, or for us to hear both of you on it. Um, another thing that stood out was how deep the commitment was, you know, that people made. Sometimes the period of the 1960s is treated like a, like a fad or a fashion, you know, especially by those uh, 60s people who have made their peace with the system. But the, these people who were originally in prison for doing some bad stuff stood up and demanded to be treated like human beings. They wrote and spoke about their demands. They never backed down, even when it seemed certain that there would be mass killings happening. And I think that that's one reason that people still talk about Attica, that people still have, you know, a lot of people, even people who weren't even born at that time, still under, a lot of those people can understand and they can find ways to, find, to, to dig into what was Attica. It's something that, that, that actually, it's permanently on the, you know, on the system, on, on, what, on people's minds. It's permanently there, you know, in a certain sense. So I'd like to talk about that a little bit.
1: Um, I, I think that, that one of the, you know, um great things that, that you see in the film is that the prisoners really quickly when they take over Attica um organize, you know, and they, they elect leaders, um, they're they're giving out food um to other prisoners, um, they kind of form a community. Um, where before they were really separated by, by race, you know, white prisoners, uh, African American prisoners, Latinx prisoners. Um They start seeing themselves all as prisoners and and in many ways unite um, when when they take over because they have to be united for for their survival. So I I think that's one of the the most interesting points about Attica and and something that most people
0: don't know. This is The Michael Slate Show, and we're talking today with Stanley Nelson and Tracy Curry, the co-directors of the new documentary Attica a detailed portrait of the 1971 Attica Prison Rebellion. This movie is streaming on Showtime. The film does expose that, you know, white, um, basically the white supremacy from the prisoners, the guards, Nixon and Rockefeller. You know, it's, it was, you know for some people, I think it's a little stunning to hear, hear Nixon and Rockefeller talking the way they were talking about, you know, basically... Looking at, the people in the, looking at the people in Attica as animals who didn't deserve to live. And you think about the, how this was pushed out and pushed around in, in society at large as a certain, at a certain point. So how about we uh, talk about that a little bit? I don't know which one of you would be uh, more interested or more into talking to it right away. Or maybe we could talk have both of you say something about it. Because it was a very... I mean, yeah. when I saw the film, it was something that really struck me. You know, it was something that...
4: You... Yeah, I think uh, that, that phone call is probably one of the words stunning, um, of many stunning moments, um, in the film, because I think, you know, it's a rare opportunity to sort of see how the sausage gets made, um, in terms of the way that the state needs to craft a narrative to justify its use. And in this case, it's abuse of power. Um, and I think a lot of us always have a sense that like, you know, there are these dark behind closed doors rooms where these conversations are happening and then we just kind of see the end result of it. Um, but here you hear, Um, uh, in in detail, um, the story that Nixon and Rockefeller are trying to craft in order to basically justify the the murder um, of three dozen people um, the next day. And that story is a story about um, dangerous and disorderly blackness. Um, You hear how desperately Nixon wants this to be a story about, as he says, the blacks. Um, when, you know, what we've heard from the prisoners in the days before that and the footage in the yard and the interviews is that, you know, they very much kind of almost um, transcended um, the racial divisions, as Stanley mentioned, and really organized around this political identity um, as prisoners and saw this as an opportunity to kind of um, improve um, the conditions in the prison. And so the narrative that Nixon and Rockefeller are trying to create is very different um, from that, but it's also um, in some ways, one that makes sense for them, because Nixon has just used this exact same narrative to become president of the United States. Like law and order um, is a response to you know, white anxieties um, about some of the uprisings that we've seen in cities um, and their fears about black rebellion and disorderliness. And Nixon promises them that if you elect me, I will protect you and save you from that. And it worked for him. Um, so in some ways, it kind of makes sense that he would kind of go back to that same well. Um, and, of course, we know that Rockefeller also had his own political incentive at that time because he was kind of not seen as tough enough um, for what was required um, of Republicans to win office, and he wanted to be vice president. Um, and so I think part of what's so shocking about it is that you just kind of basically hear them say the quiet part out loud, um, and so we so rarely um, get the opportunity to see it illustrated in that way.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to, we have a few more questions, but I, one of them that really still is sticking with me is this, this, the, the last part of the film, and it details the suppression of the rebellion, one of the bloodiest encounters on U.S. On US soil since the Civil War. You know, I want to talk about what happened there and what was the, what was the result of that, and, 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 and with a couple other things involved in it, which we can get into as we go along. But, you know, I remember that from, my, from myself when, you know, the impact that Attica had on me and I was living in Philadelphia, and it was just sort of, you know, in, in the neighborhood that had, you know, people uh, had mixed mixed uh, nationalities, black and white, and it was, yeah. and you were in a poor part of the neighborhood, and you know, there was always there was a kind of fighting that went on between, you know, between us a lot of times. But there was a there was an impact that what happened in Attica unleashed for a lot of people. They saw a lot of the, you know, the the horror of this society, and and this and the strength, and the, and the, and the, you know, the the basic i don't know the the humanity of the of the prisoners and that was very very important because that was one thing i think that that the system never wanted people to see and i'd like to talk about that a little bit in terms of cuz you're 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 you know sh- you're basically your piece of work actually came in and kind of cut holes in a lot of the things that were sort of like left to be there and it really actually to me and who as again as i said who lived through that who who followed that as it went along I learned a lot from you, and it, and it also raised a lot for me, and it, and it raised questions for me about how did people respond to it? You know, in terms of and and the, and the whole idea of the, the, the divided numbers of people about some really rabid rabid about supporting the, you know, the system, and then others who were really standing with the, the prisoners, both as they were fighting to stay, you know, to be there, to be to be alive, to not have to live like dogs. And then as well, when they, were, when, they were, when, the, when they were, you know, run out of the thing and, and it, many people hurt, killed. You know, you think about this, this is, this is the kind of thing that actually sets for a certain, I guess for our generation, for my generation, it set a certain place where you had to measure. You had to measure around that. You actually had to take a stand one way or another. Maybe not all the time in the open, but something that was really in your heart, in your brain to understand that what, and for me, it was understanding that what happened to the people there? What happened to the prisoners there? was absolutely you know it was horrible and it was and it it was one of those things that should should never happen again but unfortunately oftentimes will happen again but it really does require a certain understanding by people of people about why why did people why was this allowed to happen why did why did it go on and what was the what was the as it started to wind down what was the what was the comment of people what was the, how were people looking at that
1: um, you know, I, I was I was alive back then, and, and I like so many other people were just shocked. I mean, you know, the the prison rebellion went on for five days, and you um, know mm-hmm. everybody felt that at some way somehow it would um, uh, be negotiated to a peaceful settlement. You know, that that's, that's what we thought. And I just remember a sinking feeling um, when we heard that uh, you know people were slaughtered. In the yard. And, you know, that I think the film makes clear that the people who were killed in the yard were defenseless. You know, they were, it was just a massacre of defenseless people. Uh, And that was so, what was so shocking about it. I think, too, the thing that the film makes clear that might not have been clear to people at the time was that there there was no inciting incident. You know, there was nothing that, that happened that made. Uh, them go in that day at that time uh, with guns blazing and, and just uh, slaughtering people. So it was meaningless and it was senseless. Um, and then Clarence Jones so elegantly uh, in the film, you know, it did not have to be that way. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, how many people? How many people were dead as a result of all this? You know, it's kind of, you know, you think about it, and people don't, you know. Even as I was watching, I was, I was thinking, I don't think that there's very many people in the country today who have any understanding of exactly what was the, what was the reach of this? How many people did, did die? You know, and this is, this is something that was just, you know, I mean, and when you think about that, when you combine the people who were being slaughtered, and then you look at the way that those, that those guards and those cops came rushing in, and the, I mean, they were literally, you know, just white Foam coming out of their mouths, it looked like, and just charging in, screaming that they had the right to kill, that they were going to kill, and don't even think about stopping them. And that was something that was really sent not just to hit the people in Attica, but to hit all of the people, both in prison and people that were outside of prison who were on the underside of society, to basically have them say, look, step out of line, and this is what you get, because we can do it. Anyone yeah, want? I mean,
4: I think, you know, that that orgy of violence that you saw mm-hmm. um, uh, in the sequence in the film about the retaking, I, I mean, to my mind, the state troopers who went in were really kind of the blunt instrument of the state um, meant to beat the prisoners back into submission. And I think you're right send a signal not only to the prisoners in, in Attica, but to prisoners in general, general um, that you do not challenge the power and authority in this this way um, of the state. And I think it was meant to send a message. And, you know, keep in mind that those people, um, the members of law enforcement, had been outside of the prison, basically camped out for four days at that point. Um, They're not trained at all in doing any type of um, operation like this. Certainly not a riot control. The state police are the people that stop you on the highway and give you a ticket for speeding. Um, Obviously, there was racial animus Obviously, um, there was, you know, hostility because they're law enforcement and these are prisoners. And then you add to that um, these lies and rumors that are coming out of the prison and being reported in the press that the prisoners are torturing the hostages, that they're castrating them, um, that someone was pushed off of a balcony. Um, And to these members of law enforcement, these are their brothers in arms and in some cases, literal brothers. There was at least one. Um, state trooper whose brother was a guard um, who was a hostage inside of DR. And so in some ways, I think, you know, you put a gun in that person's hand um, and hundreds of those people's hands and you send them in and say, shoot, what else did you think was going to happen? Um, and that's really what the observers were saying. And um, their plea for governor Rockefeller to come that Sunday was to please don't, we're not asking you to go into the yard, to talk to the prisoners, have any interaction with them, of any kind, we're just asking you to come and see what we're seeing. Because they, the observers experienced all of that hostility um, as they're walking in and out of the prison. People, There were racial epithets, um, anti-Semitic things said about Kuntzler. And so they felt it. They knew. And all they were asking Rockefeller to do was to come and see and feel what we're feeling, because you will know the massacre that's going to happen if you see this. And he didn't do it.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things I wanted to ask you- One of the things I wanted to ask at this point, too, is that exactly how many people that you know of, how many people were killed and how many were wounded?
4: Um, 39 people were killed in the retaking, um, and gosh, dozens more were wounded. I think maybe 80 or more people were wounded. Um, Pretty much, I would say at least half of the guys um, who were in the film, uh, you hear them talk about it. They were shot. Some of them, um, to this day, uh, carry in their bodies the fragments of the bullets and pellets. Um, They were shot with there were several of the interviews where they're kind of, you know, wanted to lift up their shirts and show me and I'm like listen I believe like you don't have to show me I understand and I believe you, but um, I mean it was just a horrible horrible um, Orgy of violence is the only way that I can um, Describe it and you know people live with both the mental and emotional and literal physical scars of that to this day Mm
0: -hmm. Was anyone in the system held responsible for this?
4: No, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. no one was ever um, prosecuted. No member of law enforcement was ever prosecuted um, for the shooting.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that should make us all. Never and forget of
4: course, what... Rockefeller becomes vice president,
0: so he certainly did not right, <laughs> suffer right. any exactly. repercussions. Exactly, exactly. Um, and then they just go on; oh. They seem to roll on from year to year. What now, now? going back to the first question: What is the continuing legacy of Attica? You know, you know, because people, I, you know, it's interesting because a lot of people, a lot of younger people, have no idea that Attica was what it was, that it, that it, you know, what it stands for, all of this other stuff. And I think it's really important. I was, I mean, I was, I was so glad to see when you folks actually came out here with your, with this piece and what you were going to do with, you know, I thought that it was really, really important because there were so many people who, you know, in my age, I'm 70 years old, what am I going, you know, it's, uh you know, and I was on the younger side of the people watching this stuff, and not and, and just rushing to stand stand with the people and the rest of this stuff. But you're looking now and how this tomf, how the system has really tried to sort of cover it over, throw dust on it, turn people's face away. And I'd like to know, you know, and it does get back to the to the first question that that we were talking about, you know, the continuing legacy of Attica. What is that?
1: I think on the positive side, it, it's the um, prisoners are standing up and uniting against the mistreatment and, and um, demanding to be treated like human beings. I think that that's the the positive legacy of uh, of Vatican, and, and we should always remember.
0: very very important point now one I'd ask each of you uh, just to make a statement about you know you're out there and and it's I was so happy to see when your film was first getting you know getting starting to come out and I really thought that this is this is just one of those things that needs to be said and uh so I wanted you to t- talk about just a you know a final thing thought of your own and then where to from now for you Where can people find out more about this, too?
4: Um, I really hope that, um, you know, the film deals with so many um, intractable issues that we're still kind of wrestling with today. Um, I don't necessarily know that it offers any clear-cut answers, um, solutions to these problems, but I do hope that the film um, is an opportunity for people to kind of... um, ask some questions um, about the system that we are living with now that we have been, and that we're living with now and what it is that we're allowing the state to do in our name, right? Because people at the time were told by the state, um, the capital S state, that this, this massacre is what is necessary in order to keep you safe. In order to have law and order, um, this is the cost that you have to bear. Um, and I think there is a certain violence, certainly not the kind of massacre that happened in Attica, but there's a certain violence in the system that we currently have, right, where two million people are warehoused in the carceral system in this country. Um, and so I think the film offers an opportunity for people to kind of reconsider those questions about, is this what we are willing to allow, um, mm-hmm. supposedly in the name of law and order and keeping us safe? And maybe the answer to that question is yes, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's worth taking a real clear-eyed look. Um, at the system, and I think the film offers an opportunity to do that and to to revisit some of those questions. Mm -hmm.
0: Stanley, what about you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I hope that that people see the film. Um, It's on Showtime, on demand, um, and and repeating uh, plays on on Showtime, but Showtime on demand is an easy way to get it. Um, I I hope that people think about... um, uh, the prison system and 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 the people who are locked up in prison um you know one of the things that prisons are, are meant to do is, is lock people away and so we forget about them you know they're in places like Attica 250 miles from New York City so um, we don't we don't see them and we don't have to think about them but hopefully for for a minute um, uh, people will think about those people in prison you know there's two million people um in prison today and um, Hopefully, at the very least, um, people will think about about them and think about uh, the changes that, that are needed in our producing.
0: Mm-hmm. All right, Tracy Curry, Stanley Nelson, thank you very much for a really just a, a very, very, very important piece that you've that you've developed and put out in the, in the world, and I hope it gets as far as it can here and actually t- starts to change your poke at people's brains, make them think about what the hell is really going on and what they need to do about it. All right. Thank you so much. All right. That was an interview I think that really, a lot of people really needed to hear. And uh, hopefully we can actually explore some other things like that as we get going. But now, before we go on to the rest of our show, I'm going to play one more clip. This is part of a statement made during the discussion with observers during the Attica Rebellion by one of its most articulate leaders, L.D. Barkley. So let's give a listen.
1: We are men. We are not beasts and we do not intend to be beaten or driven as such. What has happened here is but the sound before the fury of those who are oppressed. We call upon all the conscientious citizens of America to assist us in putting an end to this situation that threatens the lives of not only us, but of each and every one of you. We have set forth demands that will bring us closer to the reality of the demise of these prison institutions that serve no useful purpose to the people of America, but to those who would enslave and exploit the people
0: of America. That was L.D. Barkley, who survived the murderous assault on Attica Prison, but was hunted down and murdered in cold blood when the enforcers came back to take the prison. We're going to take a quick musical break and be right back, so stay tuned.
2: Getting in the mist, if I'm listening, I want to hear your thoughts, see it all. Like a hear waves through the walls, you want to go out tonight, you want to know what it's like when the wind's in your lungs and the fire is in those eyes. There is a rose now, tonight can't tell me, my eyes will see, can hear your
0: whispering. That was Outer National with here is the rose. Now we're going to speak with Raymond Lada. He's a writer for Revolution, newspaper for Revolution Revolution US. And um, he's an advocate for Bob Avakian's New Synthesis of Communism, The New Communism. Beginning October 31st, the leaders of the world imperialist countries gathered in Glasgow, Scotland, to talk about the, uh, the climate emergency that is being caused by the world's imperialist countries. The planet is burning. Okay, the th- the gathering comes at a time when the impacts of the climate, uh, when the impacts of climate change are being felt by billions of people. All right, and calls for actions that are getting louder. And joining us to talk about this is just the person that need- we need to hear. His name is Raymond Lottie. You've heard from him a couple other times, and this is extremely important that we're talking with him today. Raymond, welcome to the show.
3: Hey, Michael. Thank you for having me on.
0: Sure. Um, I'm going to jump in and just you know, forget a, little, a lot of niceties that we usually have because, <laughs> because we don't have the time right now. So I want to make sure we get as much from you as we can. So let's jump into this. The meeting in Glasgow of the, uh, or the fiasco in Glasgow is a... It's what? It's, it's COP26. And uh, there's a lot of people talking about this. What are these conferences that are going on and why should we be concerned about it?
3: Okay, so um, the Glasgow summit you know started... Uh, a little more than a week ago, and this is the uh, 26th meeting of what's called the Conference of Parties. These are the major um, countries in the world, and uh, it's dominated by the capitalist, imperialist powers that set the agenda, and they are ostensibly coming together to deal with this climate emergency. And it just has to be said straight up, Michael, and to your audience, that behind the facade of these breakthrough agreements that they're touting, this conference is a failure and a fraud in this capitalist imperialist system, and its rulers are truly taking humanity off a cliff. And only revolution, socialist revolution, gives humanity a chance to save the planet. But let me just, you know, zero in now on the climate summit as such. Uh, the agreements and declarations that are coming out in the last few days, and there'll be a final uh, um, a, a statement declaration over the weekend, are completely out of line with what science tells us is necessary to do to confront this existential crisis. There's a rapidly closing window to act. And this conference is, as I said, completely out of line with what's called for and what's necessary. Um, you know, I just listened to CNN uh, before the interview, and, um, you know, their commentator from from Glasgow was saying, well, this is really a, 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 an epical summit. There's an unprecedented reference to fossil fuels, you know, in the documents. I mean, this has been known since 1987. And um, he also said – that there are remarkable incremental changes that are taking place. So, I mean, this, you know, illustrates that this uh, once again is a charade of deception and empty pledges that feed paralyzing illusions. And also, uh, this is a platform, this conference, like the others, in which the great powers, the U.S., uh, China, Russia, Germany, Japan, are contending with each other to advance their larger global Uh, imperial interests. So, you know, I think we should understand that there's a complete disconnect between the state of this crisis and what is happening to the planet. I mean, every year, 200,000 people die in India because of lack of access to water and safe water. Um, You know, 20% of the country of Bangladesh will be submerged in the next 20 to 30 years. We have 25 million climate refugees in the world today, and that number is going to grow to hundreds of millions, and 1 billion children are endangered by you know, the impacts of global warming. So this is the actual real-world backdrop you know, to what's happening. And then there are these uh, really empty and hollow agreements uh, that are being signed and that are being, you know, uh, publicized to the skies. So that is the basic take on what is happening here. And if you want, we can just quickly um, walk through some of these uh, agreements that they've reached. All
0: right. Yeah, let's do that, man. I'd, re- I'd really like to do that. So take it away.
3: Yeah. No, I'm, I'm uh, you know, that, you know, what they're describing is one, a breakthrough agreement on halting deforestation. And it, And what is happening to the lungs of the planet, the rainforests, the tropical uh, groves, that the lungs of the planet are being ripped out. And you take uh, the Brazilian, you know, the Amazon in Brazil, that rainforest is now emitting more carbon uh, than it is absorbing because of, of, of deforestation. But this agreement, you know, allows trees and living forests to continue to be cut uh, if new tree plantations are are, are, are are cultivated. But these tree plantations are commercial plantations that are used uh, to grow wood that will be chopped into pellets uh, to burn for energy. And this is destroying biodiversity. There is no enforcement mechanism for this. It's just a promise to limit and halt deforestation. And, you know, this is one of the, of the agreements that's been reached. Then there was an agreement reached to cut methane, uh, gases and methane is a very toxic greenhouse emission. Um, what they've done is to nibble around the edges of C O two carbon dioxide emissions by making some real reductions in methane. But what are they doing? Methane is linked with the industrial and agricultural systems of capitalism, imperialism on a, world scale. And they're simply saying, look, we're going to plug the methane leaks from the oil wells and the natural gas fields, um, but we're not going to draw down. We're not going to fundamentally draw down fossil fuel production. And that's what's required, the massive and rapid you know, drawdown of fossil fuels. But that's not what happens. So they're going to maintain the, uh, the fossil fuel foundations, Of their economies, but then they're going to plug up some of the leaks, and then finally, you know, they um, and we didn't hear as much about this in the U.S. and I'll tell you why. But the um, some of the some of the attendees at this conference, you know, the leaders of major countries um, said that they would phase out um, coal, and coal is the dirtiest of all fuels. So this was again was an empty pledge to phase out coal, but the United States. Under Biden, the so-called new climate president couldn't sign that, wouldn't sign that. Why? Because coal still accounts for 20 percent of the uh, electricity produced in the U.S. Um, Coal production will rise by 20 to 30 percent in the U.S. this year. And coal stocks are booming. So all of this is an illustration of what a fraud and failure this conference is, and the hypocrisy and the utter obscenity of the U.S. to kind of parade as uh, a climate-concerned great power. Mm -hmm.
0: This is The Michael Slate Show, and we're talking with Raymond Lada, a writer for Revcom.us, and we're talking about the climate emergency, COP26, or the fiasco in Glasgow, and revolution, nothing less. You know, one of the things that, and I'm going to have to skip around a little bit on, given the time we have, just coming off of what you've been saying, there are many people who who are sincere, who blame the system for, for the emergency, but are still looking for some kind of solution other than revolution to overthrow this whole system. I'm, I'm thinking here, of, you know, when you're talking about Green New Deal, things like that, what's the problem with these schemes and, and, and illusions?
3: Let me just say that fossil fuel is deeply embedded in the structure and profitable functioning of this system. You know, in the transport and power infrastructure, fossil fuels are essential to the um, cheap labor global supply chains, the factories, ships and warehouses. Fossil fuel is essential to the functioning of the U.S. military, which is not just the number one institutional consumer of oil, but uh, emits. Um, more uh, greenhouse emissions than three-quarters of the countries on this planet. Now, the Green New Deal is a solution that is proffered from within the framework of this system. A, it takes the standard of living of the U.S. as a given and says that, look, we'll just turn this economy into a, a, renewably energy, a renewable energy-powered economy. But the U.S., structure of production and consumption is completely out of sync with the preservation of the ecosystems of this planet but the new deal says we're just going to take that as a given and we will um turn it into a, a solar and wind power fueled economy and this is unacceptable and it is not a solution second the green new deal if you look at uh Uh, AOC's, um, uh, you know, the legislation that she was offering, and that's, you know, written into the, you know, she entered into the congressional record. You know, she says that this program will enhance the competitiveness of of the United States in the world economy. So it's premised on maintaining the dominance of the U.S. in the world economy. And this um, renewable power program, under the conditions of the ownership and profit-based production is going to require inputs of lithium and cobalt, you know, from the third world, the global south, and it's going to perpetuate um, the basic situation in which the U.S. you know it plays this dominating role in the world economy, exploiting world humanity and plundering the resources. It's not a shift away. It's not a transformation of this economy and its relationship to the world and to humanity and to the planet, its ecosystem. So this is just an example of, you know, of what is wrong with these proposals. And we really can only confront this problem, this crisis, this existential crisis, by recognizing that um, to deal with climate change, we need total System change. We need to overthrow this capitalist imperialist system, put an end to exploitation and the plunder that comes with this profit based system, which sees nature, which treats nature as simply an input into for profit production, and which operates according to this dictate, this commandment that the system, the economy, the units of capital that are its foundation must expand or die. Its competition, its control, its rivalry for markets, for resources, and against this backdrop of these calls for solar power, the U.S. and China, for instance, are vying for influence and control—you know—over regions of Africa that are rich in the uh, rare earth minerals that would uh, power, you know, solar panels. So this is why we need a total revolution to completely restructure this economy, to rapidly move towards renewable energy. Um, and this revolution, which is uh, a revolution whose uh, founding document is the Constitution for the New Socialist Republic in North America, authored by Bob Avakian, you know, it takes an entirely different approach to what our relationship will be to the rest of the world and to nature. It puts the protection and the preservation and the enhancement of ecosystems above its own national development. It values, it protects, it fosters dissent and the search for the truth because we need to unleash all this suppressed energy, knowledge, and know-how that's going to be required to actually uh, have a chance to save this planet from the destructive, catastrophic path that it's on, and I would really encourage people to look at this constitution for the New Socialist Republic to see both a concrete and visionary blueprint for how we could go to work on this crisis.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know that's what that's what I wanted to ask you to speak a little bit more on it on that. Just that so we got about two minutes, two three minutes. I just want people to hear, actually, the depth and with, with which you've explored this, but also the necessity that's facing us now. Not, not just, to, you know, it's not, it's not a matter of, well, we can do this, we don't have to do it, we could do whatever. You uh, actually have, you know, you've laid out a very strong argument for this thing has to be changed all the way through. And I'd like you to just maybe leave people with, a, with a, some understanding of what now in terms of the, where we're going. We have about three minutes on that yeah,
3: well, what I'm saying is that we need we need to make revolution. and this is not some far-off proposition or dream. We are in a rare time when revolution becomes possible because of the you know the the situation in society in the world. We're talking about the the infighting within the you know within the ruling class, the deep divisions in society, and what people are being forced to confront you know about what's happening to the environment the white supremacy that's baked into the functioning of this system you know the threats to women with the right of abortion under attack and all of this is part of the the backdrop and the ground of which the in which people can be you know confronting all this you know calling into question you know the way this system operates the way the society is and it's in this Condition in these circumstances, this dire my, um, environmental emergency, and everything else I've just spoken to, where people can raise their sights to a whole other way uh, society and the world could be, and this constitution for the new socialist republic sets out how we could actually go to work on this. And here, I just want to quickly, you know, summarize some key elements of socialist sustainable development. That, as I said. The new socialist economy would put the preservation of the planet above its own national development. It would um, it would uh, be premised on uh, internationalism. The whole world comes first, promoting revolution and uh, and, and and releasing unprecedented cooperation uh, to go to work on this crisis, making resources and know how available. Sharing that knowledge, no intellectual property rights, no General Motors, no Bank of America. The resources of society being utilized for the betterment of humanity and the protection of the planet. Um, we would be moving decisively towards uh, the dis- towards uh, a renewably based economy. One of the first acts of this revolution will be to dismantle all the military bases and that whole network of cheap labor, pollution-intensive production. Mm-hmm. And we'd be forging a different kind of society, a different kind of city, you know, more sustainable with local food production, in which work is united, meaningful work is united with community, and you're breaking down social divisions. And we'd be struggling against this whole mindset of consumerism, you know, that our value and worth depends on what we have and how much of it, and how many toys at the end of the day. And as I said, it's unsustainable. A Green New Deal, the current status, this capitalist imperialist uh, structure that is the U.S. is unsustainable. It would require five Earths for the rest of this planet to live at the consumption levels that exist in this country. And we would imbue people with values of appreciating the rich diversity, of the ecosystems of the planet, and our responsibility be caretakers of it for current and future generations.
0: Great, Raymond, great. Very, thank you very much for doing this, and I look, I look forward to having more of you on this show, man, because we really need to hear this kind of stuff. We have about 45 seconds to get out of here, but thank you very much for joining us today.
3: Hey, thanks for having me on, and uh, I would encourage everyone to go to revcom.us for uh, ongoing coverage
0: both of the Glasgow Summit and of the environmental emergency. All right, Raymond, talk to you again soon, man. Take care. And that brings us to the end of another show. I want to thank my guests, Stanley Nelson and Tracy Curry and Raymond Lada. I'd also like to thank my assistant producer, Henry Carson, and each and every one of you for your tuning in. If you want to write to me, you can at mslate at com. Once again, that's mslate at com, Or you can follow me on social media. We're going to go out now with Bruce Coburn, If a Tree Falls. Talk to you again next week.
2: Center for the world, ancient cord coexistence hacked by parasitic greedhead scam From Sarawak to Amazonas, Costa Rica to Mangy Macy Hills, Cortez rhythm of falling timber. What kind of currency grows in these new deserts, in these brand new floodplains?